Hello everyone and welcome. Here we are at part three of the Genesis of Meaning, looking at phenomenology and how the book of Genesis in its earliest chapters offers a kind of clue into our perceptions of the real. We've been tarrying a while with the first two verses of Genesis 1 and we are going to need to tarry a little longer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. In the previous episode, I spoke of the tension between heaven and earth, as we might experience being on a rack, being stretched between our ideals and our concrete realities. But I want to explore an almost opposite experience of heaven and earth, as a kind of reminder of what we're looking for, namely a clearing in which we can better get a sense of the experience of being. A few years ago, I went hiking with my dad and two other friends in the Natal Drakensberg. The idea was to leave the city of Pretoria, take a six-hour drive, then take a fairly short and easy hike up to the Bannerman Hut, which is quite high up on the mountain. The hut, which was really a shelter and very little more than that, meant that at least we wouldn't need to carry tents with us. We all expected that this would be a cinch, and we all know that stories that begin with we all expected that this would be a cinch are not stories that end up with things being a cinch at all. One of the guys was tasked with making sure we knew where we would be going ahead of time. It happens that it was this individual who had told us that the hike to the hut was going to be short and easy, but it turned out that he had not actually looked at what the hike was going to entail. Perhaps relying on hearsay evidence, he had reported that it would be easy, and naively we had believed him. So that's definitely on us. So when we arrived, we actually needed to take a little bit of time to figure out which route we needed to take. Soon enough, we had a sense of the route, but learned that the expected six or so kilometer hike was in fact ten or so kilometers. As it happens, the hike was also going to be far steeper than we'd expected, and to make matters slightly worse, it had started raining. By raining, I do not mean a gentle, calm drizzle. I mean solid, heavy rain. Sheets of rain coming down so hard you end up only seeing a few meters in front of you before having your view obscured by a torrential veil. Finding and sticking to the path was therefore going to prove to be difficult. The sky was very dark and the clouds were thick as we began ascending the mountain. Because it was raining so hard, slipping and sliding became fairly standard practice and the walking became more difficult. I can't remember exactly what time we left to begin our hike, but it was after two o'clock in the afternoon, and I remember feeling uneasy about this fact, given the bad weather, the steepness of the slope, and the distance we had to go. I was nervous enough, because at the time I was not as fit as I would have liked to be. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we were, caught in a battle between a very imposing watery heaven and a very imposing, slippery, steep earth. It all felt very formless and void. Still, I want to bring this image up since it offers a clue into this idea that we are always, in some sense, caught in a drama moving towards something. It's not just that we live planted in the ground like a tree beneath the sky and stuck in one spot on land. Being is movement. 
Our sense of our own being is also a sense of our own becoming and the becoming of the world. In this specific instance, those of us on that hike were aiming at a little hut, a little shelter that would grant us some relief from some rather harsh conditions. And boy, we were aiming hard at that hut. It felt less like a hike than a sprint. Soon into that sprint, I became especially aware of a particular problem that was becoming more and more pronounced even as we climbed higher. Visibility was already limited, but sooner than I would have expected, the sun began to set and the hills were growing darker and darker. As a result, the pathway was becoming even harder to find than it already was. All of us became very starkly aware of the fact that it soon would be nearly impossible to see the hut that we were aiming for. I wasn't exactly scared, but I was uncomfortable, especially as the world around me grew so very dark. When the light of day was just about gone, I stopped for a moment on the path I was walking and looked up. The Drakensberg mountain range is a beautiful and astonishing thing. You can go and look on the internet if you don't know it, but it changes all the time. So as you walk, it feels like the landscape is constantly unfolding in front of you. Hidden things will suddenly show up. Well, in that moment of pausing, there, above me on a hill about 20 meters away and barely visible by that time, I saw the very top of the Bannerman hut that we had been aiming for. I was not alone in seeing it, and it dawned on me and those with me that we must have missed the trail that led from the path we were on to that hut. Given the sheer driving rain and the dimming light on that grey day, we may have easily carried on and missed it completely. I remember us ignoring any desire to find the actual path. It didn't matter. We pounded up that hill without any path, arriving at the hut just as the last light of day disappeared. We were left in total darkness, and yet we were also sheltered in that dry stone structure. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I took my backpack off, feeling the relief of having its weight now off my shoulders, totally surrounded by the night that had just descended. I was aware of the presence of my father and friends around me, as well as of the sound of rain pounding on the roof now above my head, and the earth was formless and void. I knew where I'd put my torch, and so I felt for the top pocket of my rucksack and started digging around until my hand gripped onto a cold metallic cylindrical shape, and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. I fished the torch out and switched it on, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. I knew in that moment, with a kind of clarity I have seldom felt, how small the difference was between the possibility of disaster and the possibility of safety. There was a hair's breadth between getting utterly lost in a waterlogged night of mud and slippery grass and finding a way to sleep comfortably through the night. The hut would have been close to impossible to find in conditions like that had we missed it, and we had just so nearly missed it. We may have spent the night wandering out in the open, feeble torches fighting almost pointlessly against darkness and rain until we gave up and just sat down to wait the night out. It would have been, to put it mildly, miserable. But just in time, we had looked up and we had seen our salvation. Stepping into the darkness of that hut felt like stepping into the light of day, even before we had switched our torches on. 
Amazing how paradoxical this was, to feel that even in the darkness there can be light, that the darkness itself could feel like light. Heaven and earth were still inhospitable at that moment, of course, but we had found shelter and it was glorious. And then there was really light as torches found candles and portable battery-powered lights and that little hut became a lantern on a hill. In that shelter, light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. In our age, the trend is to reduce truth to facts, to what we can access easily through a web search and digest easily without much effortful thought. But this story that I've just told you reminds me that truth is something that takes place in a drama, and as a drama, the relief of finding shelter would have been nothing without the formless void around it, without the chaos. The truth of the shelter, so to speak, was something that came from the outside, like a revelation. Those of us who are Christians would claim that Christianity is true, but this claim contains a difficult paradox, since it implies accepting that reason is capable of grasping the truth while also claiming that the primary way that we know the truth of Christianity is by revelation, something that, by definition, arrives from beyond the horizon of reason. Does the reception of revelation not end up merely obliterating its revelatory character? This is an age-old philosophical problem, the problem of whether we can know what is genuinely other, If revelation conforms with the human capacity for thought, won't its essentially gratuitous nature be obscured? Yet, we need otherness. We need it more than ever in our time, since we arguably live in a time of the absolute self, where everything has been constructed around confirming the identity of each individual. We are not trained in our culture to deny self as Christ taught. We are trained to reclaim and grab onto self. Even the existence of Web 2.0 thinking, where algorithms are entirely geared around feeding to you what you already know and agree with. In this time, where the other has been expelled, otherness becomes even more unthinkable. The revelatory character of Christianity also becomes unthinkable. But we need otherness to remain itself in its otherness. Love demands this. I do not want to love my neighbor as myself because he is really just an extension of me. I want to love him as the irreducible, non-sublatable other that he is. One of the major biblical themes is what we might call the letter-spirit dialectic. Christ, for instance, spoke against many of the scholars and lawmakers of his day because of their tendency to reduce the spirit to the law that is to reduce its revelatory character to the letter of the law. This is like reducing a concrete fact to its abstract formulation. This means essentially forcing spirit to conform to the expectations of reason. For Christ, this was sacrilege. This is an ancient temptation, and in our age it takes the form often of so-called instrumental reason, which converts everything to something usable, including people. In fact, one of the most obvious examples of how people get reduced to use is in the popular idea of diversity. The idea sounds very good on the surface. We want diversity. We want various people, that is, various others, to gather and feel welcome. But within the idiotic frame of woke ideology, 
Diversity is not so much about otherness, but about a specific mode of consumable otherness, where human beings soon get reduced to incredibly simplistic identity markers. What matters in that ideological frame is not the wonderful and glorious complexity of the human being, but whether people accept the semiotics of otherness. In this way, it's no wonder that wokeism is a capitalist ideology. It is essentially like consumerism. It is consumerism. In it, no one has to do the difficult work of grappling with the fact that their neighbor doesn't actually agree with them on most points. It's not actually about diversity. It's about what looks like diversity. Sadly, I don't think I'm even being cynical in reading it this way. We see this eradication of otherness play out especially in how sexual relationships get commodified in our age. Sex so easily becomes the measure of compatibility in a relationship rather than any other dimension of the human being. But the notion of compatibility is potentially worrying. It is the notion not of the presence of the genuine other, the other who must be loved in themselves as the other, It is the notion, rather, of how the other fits within the given expectations of a person. In a use-centered culture, the precise intentionality of people towards others soon gets warped into a specific extension of a kind of self-absorption. People are viewed the way social media posts might be viewed as things to be liked or dismissed. Just scroll past if you don't like it. This technology reveals the temptation many of us experience to reduce all otherness, including all revelatory otherness, to something strictly consumable. But there is actually a positive sense in which we might think of use. I'm reminded of St. Augustine's idea that everything should be loved hierarchically according to its proper relationship to God. For him, virtue is ordered love. Disordered love undermines right relationships and especially renders relative things more absolute than they deserve to be. Augustine makes a distinction between use and enjoyment. For him, in the order of love, God is the ultimate object of our love, and so God alone should be truly enjoyed, while all other things are useful insofar as they can become sacraments by which we may enjoy God. Augustine thankfully offers some nuance to this idea when he says, There are some things which are to be enjoyed, some which are to be used, and some whose function is both to enjoy and use. We are commanded to love each other, for instance, and so this fits into the category of enjoyment. But we are also meant to regard each other as relative to God, and so in this respect people fall also into the category of use. But it's a very particular kind of use. It's the use of a person that means enjoying them to enjoy God. In this, there's a dynamic such that otherness is not reduced. But as I've already suggested, there is a negative kind of use too, where we regard what is other only selfishly, as if it is merely there for us. This is anti-sacramental, where the possibility of genuine revelation and otherness is denied without consideration. This is also narcissistic, in which otherness has been consumed by self-mediation. Revelation is squashed. I'm reminded of Chesterton writing in his book The Defendant about the simple act of turning a beggar from the door and how after doing this one cannot in the end pretend to know all the stories the beggar might have narrated. We do not really have knowledge, in other words, if we have shut the door. Self-assertion alone, Chesterton writes, cannot obtain knowledge. 
He uses another example to make this point. A beetle may or may not be inferior to man. The matter awaits demonstration, but... If he were inferior by 10,000 fathoms, the fact remains that there is probably a beetle's view of things of which man is entirely ignorant. If he wishes to conceive that point of view, he will scarcely reach it by persistently reveling in the fact that he is not a beetle. In other words, to experience and enter into the truth of a thing, there must be a way for us to find its otherness without that otherness being reduced to our own limited point of view. The theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar offers a picture that can prove to be quite enlightening. It's a picture of how the encounter between heaven and earth and the Trinitarian God, speaker, breath and voice, announces the light. Again, the introduction to Genesis is revealing something about our actual experience, but this finds an echo in Balthasar's theology that I find quite compelling. Balthazar presents us with an essential dramatic conception of truth, a sense, that is, that our encounter with the truth really is an encounter. This is articulated by giving full attention to our embeddedness in the world, how we develop a sense of imminent knowing through our interactions with the real. But it is precisely this that raises the problem. How can we encounter the new? How can we be surprised if our tendency is to meet the unfamiliar always on the terms of the familiar. In a way, even the incarnation can be read as part of this problem. Jesus claims to be God, but appears to be a man. What the liberal theologian does, because of how terribly strange this claim is, is simply say, Jesus was just a man, a very remarkable man, but a man nonetheless. This amounts, however, to a defaulting in our knowing, how we tend to read everything in terms of what we already know and understand and accept. Even if you want to linger in your doubts about Jesus, the truth is that reducing him to what you expect him to be amounts to an example of refusing otherness. As I see it, this is a dismissal of the problem rather than an actual attempt to deal with it. When I mentioned in the first episode that I'd like to articulate a plausible Christianity, I hope I was clear enough that this would not mean reducing all otherness to what the mind is willing to take at face value. Balthazar's proposal opens a way beyond this reduction. The little child, Balthazar writes, awakens to self-consciousness through being addressed by the love of his mother. It's such a beautiful idea, an idea so close to the human experience. It offers a way to consider the dramatic structure of truth. For Balthazar, the child's self-consciousness is decidedly not self-generated. Rather, It is something that occurs in the encounter with his mother, and especially with his mother's smile. As D.C. Schindler writes, the conditions of possibility arise not wholly from below, but as a gift from above, which, precisely because of its generosity, creates the space for the from-below capacity to receive it. This is to say, because the mother's smile is a gesture of love that welcomes the other, her child, It does not impose itself as an opaque and violent demand, but as an enabling invitation. This is a picture like that of someone reaching down into a pit and grabbing his arm and raising him up. The welcome of the mother is precisely what gives the child the ability to awaken to consciousness. It's not just that I must mediate the world and force it to conform to my experience. It is that the world, by this I mean the world of meaning, This world mediates itself to me. I do not merely reach up and grasp God. 
I find first that I am grasped and welcomed by God. In Balthazar's illustration, the child anticipates the revelation of the mother's smile, but it cannot originate it. Yet, its openness to this other, allowing the mother to mediate herself to him, recasts the original openness of the child. The anticipation cannot know what it is expecting. Yet, when it encounters it, that anticipation itself gets transformed. The truth is revealed, light is spoken, and not in anything like a one-dimensional manner. The truth has a dramatic structure. We have moments like this so often, as if we knew we were made for something, but we just don't know what that something is yet. And then, sometimes, something just clicks. I often have this feeling, even just exploring the world of philosophy and theology, the realm of ideas, I know so often that I'm looking for something. I anticipate something, yet the encounter from beyond pulls me into that something in a way that I could never have fully anticipated. My anticipation is reformed. It is the otherness of the other, married to openness, that transforms the encounter. This is a bit like what the Tao Te Ching says about how a bowl is created by what is not the bowl how the negative thing at the boundary of a positive thing is precisely what allows the truth of the thing to emerge, and vice versa. However, I am concerned about how so much of life around us has become a matter of habituation and desensitization, how so much has been constructed around making everything smooth and familiar. It's fair to expect that we would not want life to be difficult and always filled with friction. Certainly, I'm not talking here about being rid of harmony. And, in fact, I'd say that genuine harmony is about the interplay of sameness and difference, self and other. But perhaps we run the risk these days of not even anticipating a surprise that could come to us from the outside. I think of Byung-Chul Han's observation that perception in our world today functions like binge-watching, where time is eradicated and people strive to lull themselves to sleep in the pleasure of consuming what is merely entertaining. Against this trend, we need something like genuine contemplation, sitting and thinking, or sitting and not achieving anything, waiting, resting, enjoying mini-sabbaths and actual sabbaths. It's about prayerfully anticipating what does not strictly conform to the paradigm of entertainment. It is about giving up the self, being willing to give up the self that would have the universe be made in its image. In contemplation, we find ourselves again in the beginning, where God creates the heavens and the earth, and the earth is without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is always hovering over the waters, over the chaos in our lives, and there God speaks. Let there be light.